So if you listen to the podcast at all, you know by now, I'm a child of the 70s and the 80s when it comes to my most formative TV, computer games, movie, book experiences. And spending most of my childhood as a latchkey kid who, you know, had to entertain himself until my mom came home from work, TV, afternoon reruns, that was a big part of my childhood life. And of course, later computer games, Atari, arcades, and and then music and concerts. And TV and movies for all of us, I think, sometimes provide some of the connections to things that, you know, maybe elude us at times growing up. In the most recent Live at Pompeii episode of the podcast, I talked about how a single afternoon spent watching that Pink Floyd concert film with two other kids in the neighborhood provided me a much needed path out of that neighborhood and into a life with broader perspectives that I was introduced to by the movie, but more importantly, by the two guys who knew about the movie when I didn't. And I've talked about, you know, Columbo a lot on the pod, for example. My dad, who I didn't grow up with, uh, was a big, gleeful Columbo fan. He got a big kick out of Peter Falk's embodiment of the character. And I think the cleverness and the wit of the wordplay also appealed to him. But, you know, again, I didn't grow up with my father. And at the time, although I have, you know, a specific memory of him watching and appreciating Columbo, much in the same way I do uh, with the sound of 1970s baseball broadcasts. We'll watch Grabowski as Frank was telling you. Rub the ball up, meditate, then pound it into his glove and turn around quickly and about face. He's really milking this one, Frank. What's this? He knows he's being seen everywhere. There it is, and there's the fan reaction to it. They love it out here in Kansas City. That brings me right back to this time spending summers with my dad. Columbo was more like a piece of a mystery to me, the mystery kind of being him. So at the time, the show was more kind of like, hmm, that's something that he likes. And I never really saw it for itself until years later when I found my own way to Columbo and then came to realize that a lot of the same appreciation that my dad had was something that I shared. So I think that's the way movies and TV shows sometimes, you know, either build or form or connect things in our lives. And of all of them, I would, I'd say the Rockford Files to me is, is just, I don't even want to put a superlative label on it. Like it's the most important TV show or it's my favorite show. It, it, It doesn't even really tick boxes like that, it, it's something else. It means something else. My appreciation for it is so specific and kind of far ranging. And it encompasses both aspects of the backstory behind the show, uh, the people that worked on the show, the show itself, James Garner, uh, the casting, you know, so much of what it is and represents really speaks to me. And the connection for me is to a very specific year. 
Uh, I think for a lot of us, you know, when you get out of college, let's say if you go to college, it's usually, you know, one or two or three years removed from that, that you're sort of faced with, or at least I was faced with this kind of awareness of like, well, what the hell am I going to do now? Right? Like you get out of college, maybe like I did, you return back to your hometown, you work a job or a couple of jobs or three jobs. You're trying on lives for size and some fit and some don't. And, you know, for me, the Rockford Files was something that I really jumped into during that kind of second, third year out of college where in some ways life is opening up, but in other ways, uh, it wasn't exactly closing down, but I would say it was closing in. You know, it's that time of your life when you're kind of confronted with yourself and you have to figure out who and why you are and what you are. And, you know, maybe you sidestep the mirror a little more frequently because it's gotten harder to dodge what feels like impending truths with important consequences that you aren't quite up for acknowledging yet. And underneath this time, there can be a nagging sense of unease. So for me, you know, in this time, I lived both a social existence. I worked, I went out, but I also lived a pretty isolated existence in that I had my own studio apartment. And within the world of that apartment, I frequently just spent entire days, uh, entire weekends, watching movie after movie, episode after episode of whatever I was into. And the Rockford Files is something I got into during this time. Uh, at the time, I lived around the corner from a great independent video store in downtown New Haven called Film Fest. And this was also the time of the rise of indie movies. You know, so we're talking about 1992, 1993, 1994. So, you know, Sex, Lies, and Videotape uh, is the hit of Sundance in 89. True Love, Chameleon Street come out in 1990. Please download our Chameleon Street episode because that too is a film I discovered at this exact time of my life and its cross-section with New Haven is just one more perfect touch on a film that really resonated deeply with me and still does. It's really happy to do that episode of the pod. Ruby in Paradise in 1993, all the Hal Hartley movies, Trust, Simple Men, The Unbelievable Truth, David O. Russell's first movies, Spanking the Monkey, Flirting with Disaster, uh, movies like Fresh, Hoop Dreams, Brothers McMullen, Crumb, Living in Oblivion, Brothers Keeper, Clerks, Straight Out of Brooklyn, on and on, right? So I was watching all of these movies and kind of exploring that aspect of film. But at the same time, from the chain video store, you could rent Rockford Files on VHS. This is pre, pre-DVD. So yeah, I was that weird loner video store guy. But Maybe Rockford Files was also on K- on TV. I, I did have cable at the time, so it could have been on TV. I don't really remember, but I do remember this specific time and a lot of those hours spent kind of isolating inside were just escaping into the Rockford Files. So in a way, you know, you would think on, on one hand, it sort of sounds like it has a negative connotation, but... It's what we would call comfort viewing now, right? So the Rockford Files, and specifically the cold open of the Rockford Files, that really means something more to me. It was a companion. It was a soothing show. It was something reliably transporting and immersive enough to get lost in without requiring 
a real depth of emotion or confronting of truths, right? Because Jim Rockford was kind of an amiable pal who had his own hinted at demons. If you watch the show, you know, he, he frequently refers to or others refer to his five-year bid in prison, for which he was later pardoned, his time in the army during the Korean War, various loves that got away. But, you know, Rockford's keeping on, keeping on. He, he's, not, he's not a guy who mires in self-pity, and he diffuses everything with plenty of self-deprecating humor. Jim Rockford doesn't take himself or anyone else or anything else too, too seriously. Maybe we're going off all stoked without pausing to consider our karma. I mean, maybe I was supposed to have this money. Or maybe you were. Or you and me together. Or maybe Sunfire Institute was meant to have it. Gordon, with all his incredible works that need money. you have brain damage or something? The people have guns who own this money. Yes, but suppose it was karma that it fell into our hands. Forget the karma and get in a car. And when he's confronted with trouble, he doesn't overreact. He stays cool, but... Not the cool, like he's some superhero or the smartest guy in the room, like a Columbo, uh, who, by the way, is never put into peril of any physical sort the way that Rockford is. That's a difference. But Rockford stays cool because Jim Rockford's seen some shit, man. In the episode with Hector Elizondo playing one of Jim's Korean War buddies, you know, there's these great scenes where Hector is kind of trying to get Jim to reminisce and specifically to watch some, some old home movies of their time in the Korean War, and Jim is not interested in a way that lets you know it's whatever he saw and did, it's a locked box for him. He's not willing to go there, but it obviously also affects him. So he's wounded, but he's not bowed. And he takes a lot of lumps. You know, in every episode, Garner is called upon to perform tons of stunts and fight sequences and get generally tossed around whatever locale they're shooting in. And that would ultimately be the reason why he had to stop making the Rockford Files, because James Garner's career went from the 50s through the mid-90s, and dude took some lumps. So Jim Rockford is that friend who's going to give you the space that you need. He's not going to judge you even when you're wrong. He's going to buy you a hot dog. He's going to affectionately slap you on the shoulder, and he's probably going to give you one of his napkins. That's Jim Rockford. But he's also open. You know, he's not a closed book like so many kind of noir detectives are. He's not immune to charms, or he's not adverse to being wrong or being duped or being annoyed or engaged with a given situation. He gets involved. He cares. Uh, in fact, I don't think in any episode I can recall him actually collecting his exorbitant fee of 200 a day plus expenses. I saw someone on the internet point out that would be like about $900 a day in 1974. So Rockford's not doing it for the money, just in case the ratty trailer didn't tip you off, even though it is Oceanside in Malibu. And back to the opening of the, of the Rockford Files, you know, it uses still photos to set the tone for the series. And the photos are all that kind of grainy film, and many of them are shot in what they would call the golden hour, those moments kind of just after or just before sunrise or sunset, when the light is suffused with this golden, diffused warmth that just enrobes anyone and anything in it with just what feels like good health and good cheer and, and, and good vibes. It's a kind of visual representation of okayness, of happiness. It's like a golden syrup that tells you everything is okay, or at least it can be. Um, and if you've ever been in Southern California in that light, with the marine air coming off the ocean, it's incredibly evocative. And the, the Rockford Open really captures that vibe totally perfectly. 
it's a snapshot, a two default, a, a two dimensional capturing of the surface of a moment without getting into all the possibly messy or more complicated truths beneath the photo, right? It's, it kind of hints at them, but it doesn't pay them off. So in the still photos, you kind of glimpse some of his low budget frustrations, you know, thwarted payphone conversations, leads not panning out, shopping for himself at the grocery store. Uh, but then you also get the highs, like his easy laughs with his dad, Rocky, the sun-kissed outdoors, the restaurants, uh, usually hot dog stand or a Mexican uh, stand because Jim was always eating on a budget. And let's remember, it's the Rockford Files, so we're in LA, we're in Southern California. And for an East Coast kid, the palm trees, the open-air restaurants by the beach, the the climate of, yeah, man, it's all good. That That seems so other as to be really transporting from the studio apartment that I lived in in New Haven at the time. But also, it's crucial to me that we're in an L.A. of later films like Jackie Brown and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the the low-slung, single-story kind of business districts. You know, not the tourist traps, not the mansions of Beverly Hills, not the movie world. Uh, we're in kind of real L.A., you know? And Jim and his his cohorts live and venture into real places in L.A. as opposed to movie places. So he's mostly knocking around police stations and motels and bars, hot dog stands, or catching his own dinner from the ocean. He's not living the high life. And the show itself is just suffused with the essential decency conveyed by, conveyed by James Garner. He's got a lightness to him, a jocularity. It's an assurance that while he's fully aware of his capabilities, He's also not deluded about himself. He's, you know, he knows he's a bit messy, as his answering message, as his answering machine messages will attest. This is Jim Rockford. At the tone, leave your name and message. I'll get back to you. Jim, it's Norma at the market. It bounced. You want us to tear it up, send it back, or put it with the others? It's Lori at the trailer park. A space opened up. Do you want me to save it, or the cop's going to let you stay where you are? It's Andra. Remember last summer at Pat's? I've got a 12-hour layover before I go to Chicago. How about it? Rockford, this is Mr. Dow. If you think I'm going to pay to have your car repainted, you're nuts. You can take your expense bill and stuff it. Jimmy Scott, this is Aunt B from Tulsa. Cousin Randy just graduated high school and wants to be a movie producer. Now, you live out in Hollywood, you just do something. Daddy, this is Dad. Never mind giving that talk on your occupation to the Gray Power Club. Hap Dudley's son is a doctor, and everybody'd sort of, well, rather hear from him. But thanks. Rockford, Alice, Phil's plumbing. We're still jammed up on a job, so we won't be able to make your place. Use the bathroom at the restaurant one more night. This is the message phone company. I see you're using our unit. Now how about paying for it? Mr. Rockford, Ms. Collins from the Bureau of Licenses. We got your renewal before the extended deadline, but not your check. I'm sorry, but at midnight, you're no longer licensed as an investigator. Good morning. This is a telephone company. Due to repairs, we're giving you advance notice that your service will be cut off indefinitely at 10 o'clock. That's two minutes from now. This is Shirley from the bank. The answers are no, no, and yes. No, we won't loan you money. No, we won't accept any cosigners. And yes, your account's overdrawn. I get off at 4.30. This is Marilyn Reed. I want to talk to you. Is this a machine? I don't talk to machines. 
Those are a great device. I think they did 120 of them. I watched an episode the other night that actually the message referred to the episode that followed, which I think is one of the only times that ever happened. It was something about house sitting a cat uh, for, I think, his lawyer character. Uh, But the the 120 answering machine, machine messages became such a signature device and predictably became incredibly difficult for the producers to kind of come up with something to do in every episode. And I think I read online that they solicited ideas from anyone and everyone who could possibly contribute something that they would do. So a little background on the show, because I I like kind of the story of the show. I like James Garner as a person, and I like a lot of what I can glean about how the show was made and for how long. That's, That's an important part of what I have come to appreciate about the show only more recently, you know, as I know enough to kind of read behind the scenes stuff and figure out whether a show is produced in a way that sort of feels good that you can care about, right? Um, so the show, the, the show's origins go all the way back to the TV series Maverick, uh, which was created by Roy Huggins, who's also a co-creator of The Rockford Files. And Maverick starred James Garner uh, in what Wikipedia calls an adroitly articulate card sharp in the Wild West. And much of the template of the Rockford Files is evident in Maverick with its kind of blend of drama and comedy and Garner's lanky, game-amused portrayal, very essential to the character. And to give you an idea of the length of James Garner's career, Maverick went on the air in 1957. And Rockford Files aired from 1974 to 1980. And then following a decades-long dispute with Universal over monies owed Garner's production company, Due to Universal's syndication of the series, there were eight TV movies made from 1994 to 1999. James Garner died in 2014, aged 86. So the Rockford Files pilot was written by Stephen J. Cannell, who's a legendary and prolific TV writer and producer. He also wrote 36 episodes of The Files and was the show's co-creator with the aforementioned Roy Huggins, although there's a funny anecdote that Huggins kind of stepped away, although he retained credit for the entire run. But there's a story where at some point Huggins didn't submit a script for an episode through the usual and appropriate channels and kind of just showed up on set with copies of this script. And James Garner was sort of like, why are we shooting this script? It's terrible. And only later did he realize that Huggins hadn't gone through the writer's room and done things the appropriate way. And it sort of put everybody in a bad position, and particularly James Garner as the star of the show and one of the producers of the show. So after that, it says online that Huggins never again kind of contributed a script or really had much to do. It might have been a bit of a falling out there. You know, Canal is a towering titan of television in his time. Sorry to be alliterative. And one of the interesting people that worked with Stephen J. Cannell is Juanita Bartlett, who's one of the show's producers and also was Garner's partner at Cherokee Productions, which is his production company. And Juanita Bartlett wrote 34 episodes of The Rockford Files. She also wrote for Scarecrow and Mrs. King, Greatest American Hero, um, and In the Heat of the Night. Interestingly, David Chase wrote 16 episodes of The Rockford Files. Uh, you know him best for The Sopranos. That's where he cut his teeth. A couple full cast and crew mentions. Uh, Ivan Dixon directed nine episodes of The Rockford Files 
He was previously a regular on Hogan's Heroes, and we've talked about him on the pod a few times because a film that Dixon directed in 1973 called The Spook Who Sat by the Door is a critically important American film that is as relevant today as it was in 1973, maybe more so. How long since you've been in bed? Not since the riot started. That was three nights ago, man. Yeah, I know. Catnap when I can. When did the National Guard come in? Late last night. All white. I noticed. Yeah, the people didn't dig it when they woke up this morning and uh, found the troops were here. What do you think they'll do? I can't see him trying to fight the army. They didn't mind fighting police? Yeah. I've never seen him like that. Maybe that badge has put distance between you and them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I forgot. The pigs over here and the people over there. And never the twain shall meet, huh? Hey, man, I grew up down here, too. And I know these people. Now, there were some good people out there in the streets the last few nights. Not just hoodlums, like they say in the newspapers. In a scene like this, anybody can get involved. But that's only going to make it worse. We have to maintain law and order, or we might as well be back in the jungles. <laughs> Dollars, the ghetto is a jungle, always has been. Understand, you cannot cage people like animals and not expect them to fight back someday. It has always been an army occupation here, with police badges and uniforms. Huh? You and me, a cop and a social worker, we are keepers of this goddamn zoo. The streets have to be safe. Safe for who? You're here to protect property, not lives. Well, that's what it's all about, isn't it? You worked hard to get what you got, didn't you? And you want to keep it just like I do? Bullshit. Listen, you think because you got a badge and I got a couple of degrees, that makes a difference? Do you know what white folks call people like you and me in private? Uh, it's a film I really encourage you to search out. It is a darkly satiric, way ahead of its time depiction of race relations in America and and where things go in the hypothetical world that the movie is set in. And Ivan Dixon is just did a great job directing this film and, and really deserved a larger film directing career as a black man in Hollywood. Other notable directors, James Coburn directed an episode. Uh, Coburn and Garner had starred in The Great Escape. Jackie Cooper directed three episodes. Stephen J. Cannell directed some. And a couple of the stars of the show directed. Stuart Margolin, he's Angel. Let's just call him Angel. He directed two episodes, and Jim Garner directed one episode, which I saw just last week. It's called The Girl in the Bay City Boys Club. It was his only directing credit in his entire 50-plus year film and TV career. And in his autobiography, The Garner Files, he says he only took the assignment because the scheduled director was unexpectedly available at the last minute. And I do have to say, sorry, Jim, rest in peace. It's not a very well-directed episode. That wasn't Garner's forte. A couple things on the show. Obviously, the car, right? Everyone remembers the Pontiac Firebird Esprit, uh, whose license plate was 853-OKG. Garner says he believes the letters OKG stood for Oklahoma Garner, because that's where he's from. But he doesn't know the origin of the numbers 853. One of the key, key aspects of the show is obviously the relationship between Jim Rockford and his father, Rocky. Uh, Susan Jameson, this is my father, Joseph Rockford. How do you do? Pretty good, thank you. It's 
nice. <laughs> oh, you should have seen it last night. It looked like the bottom of a grocery sack. Well, what can I do for you, Miss Jameson? Uh, well, you're the only private detective that I know, so I looked you up in the phone book. Jimmy's retiring from the private eye business. He's going into something more stable. He had a very bad year, you know, financially and physically. Rocky, buzz off. And if you start watching this from scratch, and then in the, in, in the States, the episodes are all available on uh, Peacock, NBC's uh, OTT streamer channel. If you watch the first episode, you're going to go, eh, I don't remember this guy. That's because someone else played Rocky in the first pilot episode, and then Noah Beery Jr. joined after, and thank God, because his warmth and good humor and playful bantering and parental fretting were such a huge part of the show. And they, and they gave a lot of depth to Rockford's own kind of devil-may-care attitude. And the scenes between them are always always interesting. You know, they're, there's like a frisson of, of tension that they, they do very well. They do exasperation very well with each other, undercut with this filial warmth. And uh, it, they, it goes both ways. So it, their scenes are always great. You know, these are just pro actors. Of course, in the police department, you have Joe Santos as Dennis Becker, great foil for Rockford. Gretchen Corbett does great work as Jim's attorney and his sometimes girlfriend, Beth Davenport. She's in a whole bunch of episodes. And that kind of is your main recurring cast with one additional extremely notable exception. You know, there's a lot of actors who recurred on a lot of American TV series, but of all of them, I believe you got to really reserve a special place for Stuart Margolin, whose performance as Angel Martin is a diamond perfect master class in oleaginous self-preservation. After you finish with them, I want to see Tom right here, right now. Look, why kill us both? Look, just kill one of us. That would be even better, see? You could do Jimmy now, and then I go around and I tell people, well, you don't cheat Chester Sierra, and then later on, if you want to scare more people, why well, be available for the engagement? Get him out of here. Right. If you watch only one Rockford Files episode, I really urge it to be the first episode that really focuses the whole plot on Angel. It's called Chicken Little is a Little Chicken. And it's just this kind of crazy tale about Angel getting himself into yet another scrape and then pulling Jim in with mobsters. And it's such a funny and well-written episode. Really, really unique. And the chemistry between these two guys is otherworldly. It's like a platonic love affair between two people who can't stand each other. doles out information to Jim only on a kind of ass-saving needed basis. It's a brilliant episode. And Stuart Margolin, man, God, total comic genius performer. 
I mean, he is so good and uh, so committed to this oily character who you love. And and he does, you know, he <laughs> he tells people to shoot Rockford. He skips out on Rockford. He leaves Rockford in jail. I mean, he, he behaves really, really atrociously, yet you always have this warmth and kind of love for him. That's that's the gift of the actor that that is that is on screen. Hey, Jimmy, it's Angel. Don't pay no attention to my other message. You're out of it. You're clean. No trouble at all. Just ignore the first message. Jimmy, old buddy, buddy, it's Angel. You know how they allow you one phone call? Well, this is it. Jimmy, this is Angel. Listen, I got this new pad right over by the Hollywood freeway, and some friends are coming. Fire your record player. Jimmy, Angel, here's a tip, but his handwriting's bad. Third son in the fifth race at Bell Meadows. Wait a minute, could be fifth son in the third. Wait, this might be next week's race. Jimmy, Angel, listen, Eddie Talaferro just gave me a hot tip on a class filly in the eighth out at Holly Park. Only trouble is I need 20. A couple other recurring chemistry players, just, I think, stars that came on and then had such great chemistry with Garner that they kind of brought them back repeatedly. Rita Moreno, Louis Gossett Jr., Isaac Hayes, and Dennis Dugan are also your kind of repeating guest stars whose chemistry with Garnell you'll really appreciate. And actually, the the studio, Universal, that did Rock for Files made a pilot featuring the Lou Gossett Jr. character and the Isaac Hayes character. This is Gandy Fitch, that's Isaac Hayes, and Gabby Hayes, played uh, by Lou Gossett Jr. And the series... Brilliantly, it was titled Gabby and Gandy. I mean, I can't believe that didn't go. That is, that that sounds great. The pilot is actually shown as an episode of Rockford Files called Just Another Polish Wedding. So you can you can see maybe what worked or didn't work in that there. And Gandy, the, the, the Isaac Hayes episode, the first one is one of the more unique episodes I've ever seen. It's, it, it, it's kind of the story of Gandy getting out of the prison where he, briefly uh, shared, you know, space with with Rockford. And he's this kind of tough, dangerous ex-con who is looking to solve the murder that he was jailed for of his uh, his girlfriend, whom he, he, he adamantly says he did not kill. And it, it really, it builds to this really poignant ending, a uh, very unique ending where Gandhi uh, the ex-con played by Isaac Hayes, he's forced to kind of confront his own violent past and its aftermath in the faces of the two children he didn't know he had with this girlfriend who it ends up took her own life. And, and it, it's an episode that ends not with any kind of comforting resolution, like a TV wrap-up, but it's really kind of like this sobering ending that, you know, you might outrun your demons for a time, but the bill always comes due. It's really well handled. And Isaac Hayes is a really good actor and uh, a really kind of haunting episode. So one of my favorite places to get information about these old TV shows is the Television Academy Foundation online. They have interviews with people that were involved in the creation of all of the TV series from, you know, the history of television. And it's funny because, you know, success has many masters. You've heard that phrase. And it's very true when you watch interviews, for example, Two of the people involved in the Rockford Files, uh, Roy Huggins and Mita Rosenberg, both have interviews. And if you listen to their individual interviews, there's two kind of different stories about how exactly this came to be. But I think the truth that I can glean is that Roy Huggins 
had received a call. Jim Garner had his closest associate, Louis Delgado, who happens to be related to me. He asked Louis to call me because Louis knew how close Louis and I were. And Louis said, Jim wants to do a series with you. And he's even willing to come back to Universal because he knows that you have uh, autonomy there. And I said, great. And uh, I said, uh, I'll come up with something and we'll move right away. I came up with the story. When I dictate a story and it's typed up, it's longer than the script. So I gave that to uh, Steve. Steve wrote a wonderful pilot. And, you know, if someone said, if he said to a tough guy who's hitting him, uh, so-and-so, uh, yeah, I, yeah, you're right. No, I'm not, I'm wrong. Yeah, you're wrong. <laughs> that kind of thing. In other words, he would act cowardly. But he wasn't, of course, any more than Maverick was a coward. But anyway, that, uh, that sold. And, oh, and, and Jim called me up and said, Roy, he said, I have a problem. I promised uh, Mita Rosenberg that she would be the executive producer of my next series, no matter what, where it was, anything else. And I said, Jim, I don't care about credit, as you may know. Because, uh, you know, I, I use pseudonyms constantly. I had 12 pseudonyms at one time. But I said, Jim, that's not a problem. She can be the executive producer, as long as she understands that, that it isn't, she's, run, she's not executive producing the show. I am. He's okay. It's all right. And so she became the executive producer. Her career started in the 30s. She was a literary agent. She worked with people like Christopher Isherwood and Bertolt Brecht and Raymond Chandler. She was a former communist, and she actually named names in front of the House on American Activities Committee. You can listen to our episode on the movie High Noon for more about the people who chose various sides during this time in Hollywood and why our kind of contemporary condemnation or praise for someone choosing either stance, naming names or refusing to name names, is really not a black and white kind of situation. You know, sometimes there were no choices offered. You had no choice. And she's kind of an example of that. Someone kind of slighted her and said, well, I think she named the names of all the communists she knew who she didn't like, but she didn't name any of the names of the ones she did like. So anyway, she, she bounced back from that and resumed her career in the 60s, and she managed Robert Redford and James Garner as a talent manager. And eventually she joined Garner in Cherokee Productions. So she's an interesting person, and she, as I said, directed six episodes of the show. And Juanita Bartlett, who I mentioned, is another woman of note, a writer and a producer on The Rockford Files, and you'll see her name in many, many episodes. And also, there's a black producer and writer who served in a pretty high-profile role on The Rockford Files, which, again, I think is pretty pretty atypical for the time. Charles Floyd Johnson got his start after a stint in the Army, and I think some time as, a, as a, either a patent attorney or an intellectual property attorney, he basically shifted his interests to Hollywood, and he literally started in the mailroom at Universal Studios uh, before applying for and getting a job as a studio production coordinator. Shortly after, the, in the first year of that show, there was a, a, an internecine warfare between Mita Rosenberg and Roy Huggins. And uh, Roy had worked with Jim Garner on the early Mavericks, but Mita was Jim's um, ma manager and, and agent who had become the executive producer, and they did not get along. So Roy departed, and um, all of the people who Roy uh, had hired, a couple of the producers, left. 
one of the people who left was the associate producer. So I'm still in the production coordination department as their production coordinator. And literally, uh, the phone rang one day, and it was me and Steve. And they were now running the show, and Roy had sort of stepped back. And they said, come down and talk to us. And um, I went down, and they said, how would you like to be our associate producer? Well, the interesting thing about the story is that I had still been pursuing acting on the side. And you weren't allowed to act and work in production. SAG didn't really allow it, and the studios didn't allow it, but I did. So I was acting at the same time. So when they asked, they offered me the associate producer job, I was going, well, I'm just starting to also act, and that's what I really wanted to do. But they said, think about it, you know? And I went home uh, by myself, and I thought about it, and I thought, you can always act probably, but you're not going to be offered every day a chance to be an associate producer. And so I opted to, to take the job, and, you know, uh, that was the beginning of a long career in 1974 as the associate producer on The Rockford Files. Kickstarted a career that spanned, you know, 100 episodes of The Rockford Files and continues to this day, where he's actually been the executive producer of the show NCIS for something like 340 episodes, however long that show's been on the air. So he, he kind of, you know, had many jobs uh, starting as an associate producer on The Rockford Files and I think eventually becoming a producer, maybe an executive producer. And again, you know, just another kind of interesting little side note to this show. The Rockford Files, by, you know, a lot of measures, just a fairly typical piece of star-driven studio entertainment, also has this kind of little bit of a different imprint in terms of who the decisions make, decision makers were on any given episodes. So a more recent Rockford File pop culture mention, uh, you may remember... 1990 alt-rock sensation Ben Folds 5. They mentioned the Rockford Files in their ode to being annoyed by the then-common 90s pose of being completely apathetic and indifferent to everyone and everything in their song, Battle of Who Could Care Less. What a great song. Great band. Check out their album, Whatever and Ever I'm In. It'll take you back to the 90s if you were there, and it'll teach you a little bit about what the hell was going on if you weren't. So that's just a little bit on the Rockford Files. You know, it's it's a show that's worth your time. It takes some time for the show to launch. I think I watched all of the first season and maybe half of the second season before I kind of felt like I'd really been given something special. Uh, it took a while for the show to kind of find its footing and to to become, I think, the just to figure out the the special sauce, you know, which which then involved kind of guest stars a la Columbo who could kind of step into that very difficult thing that our 
frequent guest on the pod, Lee Wilkoff, has eloquently described as just being one of the toughest jobs in TV is to step in and do a guest stint on a long-running TV show where the whole cast and crew of the show has been together for years and years, and you're just kind of this schnook coming in and, and having to fit in. It's really, really hard to do. So on the later episodes where that kind of became the the thing that Rockford Files, you know, did, it's notable that that just worked as well as it did. You know, these these actors are able to step into this universe and have interplay with not only Garner, but with Joe Santos and with Angel and with Beth and with all the other kind of key players. So it's the Rockford Files, man. You know, the theme song is forever. the amazing theme song composed by Mike Post. Here's Mike Post talking a little bit about the origin of the theme. And Cannell said genius stuff to us. Genius stuff. You know, he said, I said, well, who is this guy? He said, well, he said, look, Garner's from Oklahoma, so the guy's a little Southern. And he said, you know, his dad's a trucker, and, and, and he's the anti-hero. He's, you know, he's more interested in 200 a day plus expenses than he is a saving a good. Doesn't want to get in a fight. Doesn't want to get his ass kicked, you know? So he's I said, okay. And then he said this great word, you know. He said, he, there's something about him that just has his hand on his hip and his wry. Just this wry sense of, of himself. He's laughing at himself. I went, okay, see. He goes, what are you going to do? I said, let me think. You know, I came back, you know, I called him. I said, harmonica. He said, oh, great idea. I said, nobody's done a blues harmonica thing on TV. And I said, but I said, we're going to do something different. We're going to use Dobro. Huh? I said, it's a bluegrass instrument, but it's got this thing to it. It has this sass to it. And I said, we're going to use electric guitar. It's going to be funky. Oh, I don't know about electric guitars. And I said, you know, just go back and listen to your Peter, Paul, and Mary records, Candle. Don't give me any trouble, you know. So I don't know about electric guitars. You know, you always, you always want to make it sound like the Allman Brothers. You know, so, so, you know. I mean, <laughs> the best, the best guy, the best guy. So... You know, Pete and I sit down and we, and we okay, and now we'll put a little orchestra with it. We'll put put a, a a chamber group on steroids with it. You know, like two flutes, two French horns, two trombones. I mean, how, what a weird little orchestra, you know. That's me and Pete just throwing curveballs. Don't do it the same as everybody else. So, you know, now we're coming up, we're trying to come up with hit licks. We're try, I said, look, let's make one-minute hit records. Let's do that. So we did. And <laughs> next thing you know, it's a hit record. And 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 Cannell, by the way, Cannell came on a, on a stage and heard it and went, "Oh man!" And of course, everybody else, you know. I mean, no offense, but but the Roy Huggins and the Mita Rosenbergs and all the older folks that are, you know, that are real TV people are going, "Well, we don't know. What does everybody else think? What does everybody else think? Well, let's see what the agents think. Let's see what the, you know, you know, can't we test this someplace? You know." <laughs> 
No. No, we're just going to have a genius like Steve Canical. Yeah, do that. I posted, whenever I post something on the Rockford Files, I get multiple comments about the theme. I actually kind of restarted my my rewatch, which I'm I'm through season two right now. I started my rewatch on Peacock, and at first in season one, I was like, what the what did they do? I think they sped up the the theme. Uh, but I can't find any evidence that they sped it up. And it may be that there are multiple versions of the theme that were used over the course of the series. So it may be that in that first season, there was sort of a accelerated version of the theme that then kind of expanded more properly with the guitar solos evident in the season two theme and then beyond. So this, the, the theme, you know, is forever. The still photo cold open is forever. And the portrayal of Jim Rockford is forever. It's a really feel-good show that makes me feel good whenever I watch it. And if you're not familiar with it, check it out. Maybe you'll enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Sorry I misfigured my checking account and I'm overdrawn. Sorry I stopped payment on it. So when it comes, tear it up. Sorry. Autos Fantásticos. La única oportunidad en su vida le ofrece Rosario Llantas Radiales. Call toll-free 555-3121. Jim, it's Harry. We've been waiting on you two hours. The forks. Where's the forks? Lasagna ain't no finger food. Sorry, Jim. This is for Rocky. Hey, Rock, Stan. Got that redhead and his sister, 10.30 Macy's Grill. <laughs> Mr. Rockford, Miss Miller of the Bartlett Book Club. Great Detectives of America is not in stock, so we sent you Cooking Made Easy. Hope you enjoy it. Jim, Sally, hey, I just found out you're in Aries. Listen, if you have Virgo rising, give me a call. Jim, Madame Arcana at the Zodiac Restaurant. You don't pay that dinner tab. We're going to repo your birthday. Jim, it's Eddie. You were right about sweet talking the seventh. He breezed in, paid $72.50. But I didn't get your bet down. Uncle Jim, it's Ralph. I got your letter, but I moved out here anyway. I really want those detective lessons.